Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, an officer of the Knights Templar discusses the life and times of America's most powerful, influential, and nefarious mason. His beliefs were such that, especially towards the Native Indians, they believed in equality. But he also believed the slavery, slavery in that it supported the economic side of the South, the agricultural side. So he must have been, right from the very start, a very tormented individual. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month. Plus, access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. And I hope you had a chance to listen in as I hosted Coast to Coast AM this weekend. I'll be back in the Coast Air Chair Sunday, May 31st. But I'll also be hanging out a little bit with George Norrie as a guest on Coast this coming Thursday, May 14th. From 11.30 to midnight Pacific or 2.30 to 3 a.m. Friday morning. This is a special edition of Coast to Coast AM. George Norrie will be interviewing all of us guest hosts. Ian Punnett and George Knapp, myself, Jimmy Church, Lisa Gar, and Connie. Willis. I'm really looking forward to this. It should be a lot of fun. Hope you can listen in. Go to coasttocoastam.com for more information. The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar by William Mann is a modern-day thriller centered on authentic historical letters encoded with Templar and Rosicrucian secrets. It includes the actual text of recently discovered correspondence between two famous 19th-century Masonic leaders, Albert Pike and Colonel J.W.B. McLeod Moore. It also includes fascinating details about the life and times of Pike, the most influential American Freemason, primarily in the Scottish Rite Southern jurisdiction. Pike was also a general in the Confederate Army, a member of the Secret Society Knights of the Golden Circle and the KKK, and a possible conspirator in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, the author of one of the most important books in Freemasonry, Morals and Dogma. William F. Mann is an officer of the Knights Templar of Canada's Grand Executive Committee, a member of its Grand Council, and serves as the sovereign great Priory's Grand Archivist. Bill is a registered planner, forester, landscape architect, and environmental management consultant within both the province of Ontario and in Canada. His latest book is The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar. Hey, William, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? 
Good. Thanks very much, Richard. How are you doing uh, with the uh, isolation, self-isolation? Well, as I always say, I've been practicing social distancing for decades, so I haven't really noticed a difference. <laughs> I, I was thinking of that, thinking that you're doing your podcast uh, uh, most of the time, probably within the uh, quiet room and uh, in your house. So hopefully uh, I'm, I'm finding it hard. I'm finding as a, as a Mason myself, I'm uh, always on the phone talking to other Masons, a lot of the older fellas. They're really suffering from uh, not being able to go to the meetings and and uh, they're suffering from social distancing and everything. I can imagine, yes. For a certain generation, not used to, let's say, getting together on Zoom, it's just not the same. And so, uh, yeah, social interaction is vital, really, to good health, I think, to good mental health. Very much so, and that's what the fraternities and the brotherhoods are all about, that, that social interaction. Without that, I, I, I think a lot of people are feeling a lot rather hollow. Certainly. So let's talk about the last refuge of the Knights Templar, the ultimate secret of the Pike letters. And before we get into how you uncovered these letters and and, and some of their contents, uh, let's talk about Albert Pike. And to start off with, as you point out in the foreword, such a remarkable man, nefarious in some quarters and certainly influential. But as you point out, with such a character, it was very easy for you to write a piece of fiction. But why turn this amazing adventure into a novel when you could argue just the actual story itself as a piece of nonfiction would have made a terrific read? It would have, but uh, I found that uh, although my uh, nonfiction books have sold really well and have been bestsellers here in Canada and in Europe around the world, I find that uh, people are more accepting of some of the, uh, uh, let me put it this way, the more distant concepts, uh, spiritual concepts that are being put forward and uh, some of the uh, background and as you pointed out, uh, Albert Pike is really quite an enigmatic uh, figure. I've been studying him uh, for over 25 years, and when I discovered these letters, I was just, I was just uh, uh, flabbergasted in terms of what I read to be the hidden meanings behind the letters uh, between uh, Albert Pike, who at the time was uh, sovereign grand commander of the Scottish Rite of the Southern Jurisdiction in the United States, and Colonel William James Burry McLeod Moore. I know that's a mouthful, but he was the first Supreme Grand Master, Sovereign Great Priory, Knights Templar of Canada. I was just fascinated, but I also was wary because, as you pointed out, uh, Albert Pike is such a nefarious fellow. Um, uh, not that well known, but uh, within certain circles, within certain extreme circles, especially in the south of the states, he's almost uh, considered to be a demigod. Let's talk about his early life, uh, because obviously a brilliant mind accepted into Harvard at the age of 16, but he couldn't afford to go. Tell me a little bit about his, his formative years. Well, as, as I dug into the, his background, I found that uh, he was, in fact, uh, Jesuit trained. Um, they must have recognized at a very early age the, uh, the brilliance uh, of uh, Pike himself. But uh, given that he was uh, accepted in the Harvard at 16, uh, 
prior to the Civil War is remarkable in itself. But then, given that uh, he couldn't afford to go, he was self-taught, and he put himself through uh, virtually law school um, and, and his training uh, outside of the uh, formal academic circles and passed the bar exams of Arkansas, which is pretty amazing at the time when you think about it. There's a wonderful story about uh, you describe him as being a restless soul, as as most self-made men are. And shortly after the Louisiana Purchase, uh, he decided to head west on a hunting expedition to Taos, New Mexico, of all places. What happened? Can you imagine uh, on just on that uh, on that uh, the start of the trip, uh, his horse uh, since he bolted and died, and he walked the fifteen hundred miles. Uh, across desert, across uh, plains, um, across quite the nefarious territory and uh, Indian territory. That, to me, was a remarkable in itself. It showed the uh, determination and the inner spirituality of, of this character. And then he went on to uh, fight within the American-Mexican Civil War. Um, and then he went on and became a brigadier general uh, for the South in the uh, Civil War. Uh, again, remarkable in itself. So obviously his brilliance, his determination, his stamina, he was quite a dynamic uh, fellow at that time, really shone through. Uh, but I, what I found really amazing is that he, uh, he chose to fight for the South. Um, his beliefs were such that uh, especially towards the native Indians. They believed in equality, but he also believed in uh, slavery, slavery in that it supported the industrial side uh, or the economic side of the South, the agricultural side. So he must have been uh, uh, right from the very, very start, a very tormented individual. I know that a number of his letters talk about his inability to sleep and inability to achieve calm. Uh, in many ways, I, I felt for him because in, in terms of restlessness, uh, I actually display that. I've displayed that through my, throughout my whole life. Right. I, I want to come back to his affinity for Native North Americans and this, as you describe, one of the great uh, enigmas of his life that that uh, as a lawyer, he 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 took up their cause right to the Supreme Court. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, def- defended uh, slavery. Um, just I just wanted to back up a moment, too, because I found this interesting that he he married into some uh, considerable money. Uh, his his wife was a descendant of. Alexander Hamilton. Again, again, the enigma comes through. He, he was obviously had certain amount of influence that he could impart himself with uh, into the social circles, and he achieved that. But he was just as comfortable uh, sitting around the campfire and being initiated into the uh, secret societies of the, of the native Cherokee and Choctaw, the Medewin. So that is fascinating in itself. And he considered Native Americans to be as equal or from a spiritual point of view, beyond as equal. And, uh, but on the other hand, he commanded the um, three groups of Native Indians uh, during the early part of the Civil War. They fought for the South, which is a very little known fact in itself. Right, there was a cavalry unit, um, but they were 
I guess the agreement that he had made with them was that they would only sort of patrol or fight on Indian land. And when he was ordered to take his unit into Arkansas, he refused and got into some serious hot water with the uh, the Confederacy. I I believe they did they not charge him with treason? Absolutely. So he was. uh, around 1863-1864 on the run from the uh, the southern uh, government in itself. Uh, he was hiding out in the wilds of Arkansas uh, trying to keep contact with his family. And uh, once that was sorted out, then the end of the Civil War, um, and he was uh, actually charged by the, uh, the Union the federal government uh, in terms of possibly being involved in the Lincoln uh, conspiracy. Right. Let's talk about um, his links to the uh, the Golden Circle, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, John Wilkes Booth was supposedly also a member. And, and this is the center of the conspiracy to assassinate Abraham Lincoln, uh, who was certainly, you know, um, Today, we, we, we view him as the great emancipator, but he was considered by many as a very divisive character, a, a, a bit of a tyrant. I mean, he, uh, he closed down newspapers. He had, he had any opposition thrown into jail. Uh, now, you could argue, well, that was the Civil War. He was struggling to keep the, the country together and extreme measures were in order. But any, any opposition was just not, not tolerated. But uh, of all the conspirators, Albert Pike was the only one to escape the hangman's noose. What do we know about his involvement in the Golden Circle and his involvement, perhaps, in the conspiracy to assassinate President Lincoln? Well, the only thing that we know for sure is that he developed the uh, the basic uh, initiatory degrees for the Knights of the Golden Circle and also the Ku Klux Klan. And we know that he was uh, a major force within the Arkansas Ku Klux Klan at the end of the Civil War. Now, the interesting thing about uh, what what I write about uh, and his involvement with Lincoln and the federal government is that there's an interesting constitutional argument here. Lincoln was trying to impose the, the federal will across the individual nations. And I find it interesting, over 150 years from the Civil War now, uh, we have this whole question of, in COVID times, the uh, federal responsibility for uh, and the individual states' responsibility. So um, unless you know your history, it, uh, it uh, is bound to repeat itself. So that's a really interesting uh, issue. And that's one of the, uh, coming full circle, that's one of the reasons that I found the need to incorporate it within a, within a fictional story. Um, I hope that anybody who reads the book will will realize that the uh, letters that I included from Pike and the history of Pike is authentic and real. But uh, uh, I'm concerned that some of those letters will actually be uh, used to certain purposes that they're not intended for. Because as I pointed out uh, and wrote about within the story itself, over Pike's life, I believe that he looked to 
he looked to atone for his earlier sins, if that's what you want to call them. And he was always searching for that spirituality. Very fascinating character. And a lot of people don't realize is that there's still a statue to Albert Pike right in the heart of Washington, D.C., while other Confederate generals have been uh, torn down or uh, warehoused, uh, Albert Pike sits in all his glory uh, right in the heart of Washington, D.C. Right. I, I wanted to circle back to uh, his involvement with Native Americans and representing them uh, all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, as you point out, and you've, this is something that you've, I, I believe you've, you've touched on quite a bit in, in other books, and that is why he might have had such an affinity for uh, Native Americans and considered them their equals. And this gets into the, the, the uh, you know, the major premise of your book, and that is the uh, books, the, the Knights Templar in the New World, and uh, a connection that the Knights Templar uh, may have had with the Native Americans going back hundreds and hundreds of years. I think Albert Pike realized that, as you indicated, the overriding concept of uh, my prior books in this book was that there was a certain group of medieval Knights Templar uh, between the 11th and uh, 14th centuries came to North America and really brought with them what is considered to be the Templar treasure. And through strategic intermarriage with the native North Americans, were able to move inland and uh, over the centuries establish secret settlements or refuges uh, across North America, always being pursued by the church and by the uh, European royalty. Um, it's interesting, uh, some of his letters, ones that I didn't include within the book, actually acknowledge this to talk about the uh, majestic uh, spirituality of the Native Americans comparable to those of the medieval Knights Templar. And Albert Pike, uh, uh, along with being sovereign grand commander, was grand master of the Knights Templar and reintroduced the Knights Templar order into the uh, United States through McLeod Moore in Canada. Uh, talk to me about the the connection between the Knights Templar and Scottish Rite Freemasonry. Well, the, the notion is, and uh, a lot of people say that there's, there's no definitive connection, but I've been able to, and that's for a further date, being able to establish a definitive connections. Uh, Knights Templar, medieval Knights Templar in their degrees, uh, really was, became the basis uh, and evolved into Freemasonry in the 14th to 16th century. Um, a lot of people don't accept that. Uh, even Masons don't accept that. But as I say, I've seen proof to the to that fact. Um, Freemasonry, as it evolved in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, there's two types of Freemasonry. There's a Yorkite Freemasonry, which is English, uh, primarily established since uh, 1717. But there's also Scottish Rite Freemasonry, which uh, has an older history. Actually, it blended with the uh, French Lodge Freemasonry that's existed since the uh, 1500s, 1600s. And it all came together in the 1800s, and it was Pike, uh, along with uh, MacLeod Moore, uh, who brought together uh, sort of pieces of the puzzle that had been scattered over the last two centuries uh, prior to their time. 
and it was Pike who wrote Morals and Dogma, the uh, penultimate magnum opus for the Freemasonry, um, uh, explaining the various degrees and the background to the various degrees. Uh, you can appreciate that during the Civil War and uh, prior times, a number of the degrees, especially in the southern states, have been scattered. So he was the one that put back together the 32 degrees of Southern Rite Freemasonry as we know it. A fascinating uh, ordeal in itself. Uh, and to consider that he learned 15 different languages, probably seven, eight of them uh, extinct at the time in order to understand the, the background and concepts to the various degrees that he reconstructed. Um, while he was fleeing uh, persecution or prosecution, I should say, from uh, the Union side, uh, he spent several months in Canada. Yes. Uh, wh whereabouts in Canada uh, did he uh, live for those that short period? He, he moved around a fair amount, but uh, the start of my book indicates, uh, rightfully so, he uh, lived for a time in Ottawa, the capital, or the what was going to be the capital of Canada at that time. And his movements were actually assisted and controlled by a number of Masons, including uh, uh, Colonel Moore. Um, Fascinating to think about what was discussed within those three months at the time. Was he considered to be a Confederate rebel, uh, disguised as somebody else? It doesn't seem, appear so. It seems that he he was living his life uh, free and easy to the point that uh, um, within three months' time, the president of the United States at that time, who was just conveniently made a 33-degree uh, Scottish Rite Freemason, uh, pardoned Albert Pike so he could come back to the States. Rather a conspicuous fellow. I mean, it's it's interesting how he managed to elude a captivity or capture. He was over six foot tall, weighed 300 pounds, shoulder-length hair. Uh, how did he uh, escape capture? Well, that's that's a fascinating thing. Um, apparently, uh, you know, here's a fellow that looked like uh, oversized Santa Claus, um, but he really didn't go into hiding. Everybody accepted who he was, and everybody accepted uh, where he was, and nobody really made that great an effort to uh, to retrieve him and to uh, bring him forward for a form of justice. Um, at the federal level, I think there were a number of sympathizers on both sides. And then you have the Masonic uh, Brotherhood associated with that. And I wouldn't call it a conspiracy, but I would say that it was very much um, um, for those uh, with the eyes to see it. Uh, he was something he was something more than what he portrayed. More of my conversation with William Mann when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. The discovery of carbon-60 is likely to be the most amazing chemistry discovery of the late 20th century. And my friends at C60Evo.com are the world's number one manufacturer of C60. The safe, consumable form of pure C60 is called ESS60. And the mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning. ESS60 is the C60 formulation used in the famous 2012 original Paris study that showed ESS60 doubled 
the lifespan of rats. ESS60 from c60evo.com is raw C60 that's been produced, certified, and guaranteed for safe human consumption. ESS60 from c60evo.com is a powerful molecule that acts as a nano antioxidant to attract, stabilize, and neutralize free radicals. It's also known to have 172 times the antioxidant power of vitamin C, 172 times, which may be why people are feeling healthier on C60. All I know is the mighty Aphrodite and I are sleeping great and we're both pain-free. To get your bottle of ESS60, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the c60evo.com link. Use the code RS1SPEC to get 5% off. RS1 SPEC and get 5% off. It's time to start taking responsibility for your health. Time to support your immune system. Join the mighty Aphrodite and I. If you want more energy, mental clarity, and a great night's sleep, ESS60 from c60evo.com. Again, go to the episode notes and click on the c60evo.com link and use the promo code RS1 SPEC to get 5% off. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. William Mann, the author of The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar, is here. We need to talk about, uh, let's just call him WGB, WJB for short. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> Colonel WJB McLeod Moore. Tell us about this fascinating character. Who was he? Why is he important? Well, he was in actual fact uh, probably the physical opposite of uh, Albert Pike. You know, very stately, very uh, long whiskers, the penultimate uh, British colonel. And he was Irish uh, to start out with. He was initiated uh, in the Freemasonry in Ireland, actually moved through Scotland, and uh, actually was... Um, was positioned uh, as a lieutenant in uh, on the Isle of Malta, and at that time, what he did is he reintroduced the old Knights Templar degree that he received in Ireland. So it was the Irish Knights Templar degree, and then he was uh, repositioned or sent to Canada, and hit the purpose of. Uh, his position in Canada was he was essentially the quartermaster general for all of Canada at that time, lower and upper Canada before its confederation in 1867. So um, what's really what's really interesting that he was he was the opposite in many ways Albert Pike, but what they shared was a love of Freemasonry and the fraternity itself. Pike was uh, being supplied, which I find really interesting. I have a number of copies of the booklets that uh, were given to Pike by McLeod Moore. McLeod Moore did a lot of traveling and collected a lot of the older degrees associated with Knights Templar, with Chapter, with Cryptic Rite, all the York Rite degrees and Scottish Rite degrees. And he was actually supplying information to Pike, knowing that Pike was looking to reconstruct the Scottish Rite degrees. And um, so after... Uh, Pike returned to the United States. When did the correspondence between uh, these two individuals begin? They started almost uh, immediately. 
and they continued over 30, approximately 30 years uh, till uh, McLeod Moore's death in uh, 1890, and uh, Pike followed very quickly in 1891. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, Albert Pike holds an interesting distinction regarding his burial inside, I guess, the the old walls of, of Washington, D.C. Yes. What I found really interesting, he was he was uh, buried first of all in the Oak Ridge uh, Cemetery, uh, but he was reinterred within the uh, the Scottish Rite Building that's in downtown Washington D.C., the Southern Jurisdiction. It's a very unique building. Um, actually, um, Dan Brown has written about it within his uh, when the, his latest novel, but. Uh, uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of people don't realize is that that building, the Scottish Rite building, was designed as a mausoleum. And uh, Albert Pike's bones were actually reinterned in into the walls of the Scottish Rite building um, and act as his final resting place. So you can imagine the veneration that was uh, uh, paid to Albert Pike uh, uh, during his life and in his afterlife. Quite incredible. And is he? Does he not also hold the distinction of being the only individual buried within, I guess, what would have been the old city limits of Washington D.C.? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And uh, when he died, fascinating thing. When he died, he died essentially penniless, but uh, he was supported by the uh, the fraternity, the Brotherhood itself. Um, uh, Think about the veneration paid to this fellow. It was beyond. Some say that he he carried more power than the president of the United States during his lifetime. How was that? I mean, how can you give me an example of of how he held more influence and power than presidents? Well, I think the pardon that he received from the president of the United States at the time, um, Andrew Johnson, was... um, Indicative of itself, he he arranged that the uh, president would receive the 33 degrees of Scottish Rite Freemasonry. In return, he received the pardon, uh, and he was actually given one of the prestige positions within the cabinet itself. That would be the Indian agent for all of the uh, all of the uh, United States, uh, which is known at that time. So. The letters, um, how were they uncovered? How did you, what, and what was your role in un- uncovering the correspondence between Albert Pike and Colonel W.J.B. McLeod Moore? Well, what's fascinating is that uh, uh, our Grand Chancellery was uh, located within Toronto itself in an old, old beautiful old building. But there was a, a fire and a flood, and it was decided to move the uh, Grand Chancellery. And uh, it was the Grand Chancellor himself at the time uh, who invited me, went down in the basement, and uh, we cleared out the basement. Uh, at that point, uh, I was uh, the grand historian archivist for the Sovereign Great Prayer of Canada. And I came upon this old briefcase, and within the briefcase, I realized that it was the personal papers of McLeod Moore. And contained within a folio was the the set of letters between uh, Albert Pike and McLeod Moore. And uh, obviously, a lot of people, nobody realized what 
the, the importance of these letters. It took me a while, it took myself even a while to realize the importance of the letters. And as Grand Historian and Grand Archivist, and now as Supreme Grand Master, I, um, I guard those letters very carefully on behalf of the Sovereign Great Prairie of Canada. And give me a sense of the volume of the, of the correspondence. It, it's interesting. I, I try to put myself in the in the light of Albert Pike. It, it's obvious that um, at that time uh, he wrote letters late at night. He was very melancholy. Uh, uh, some some of the letters were very trivial. Some of them are are very deep and spiritual. But the volume of letters there's approximately thirty three letters which I find really interesting as they correspond to the 33 initiatory degrees of the Scottish Rite Freemasonry. And, and was there anything in that correspondence that absolutely flabbergasted you? Yes, the one letter that I include within the book is one that really flabbergasted me. It talked about the, uh, the notion um, and there's an insinuation that he knew the location of the last refuge of those Knights Templar who these uh, who had uh, remained with the uh, Native North Americans, and the Native North Americans actually became the uh, the guardians of a sacred vault. And within that sacred vault, the speculation is that. Uh, um, we're talking not national treasure, we're not talking Da Vinci Code treasure, but we're talking about the treasure that was recovered by the original nine Knights Templar um, under the uh, Temple of Solomon in uh, 1098. So that's a fascinating ordeal in itself to think that uh, that treasure over a thousand years made uh, uh, has made its way to the final resting place and that the sacred vault remains to this day. And I think that was the real burden that uh, Albert Pike uh, carried and realized that he carried. He had discovered or rediscovered or probably was told by the native Indians themselves when he was accepted that there, the sacred vault uh, laid at the, uh, the final resting place or the final refuge of the Knights Templar in North America. And are there clues in the correspondence as to where that final resting place is? There are. And uh, uh, as you know, I'm Supreme Grand Master and Knights Templar, but also uh, uh, the highest degree, uh, ninth degree of uh, Masonic Rosicrucians. And there's a series of clues, uh, various levels of clues uh, associated with the Knights Templar Order and the Rosicrucian Order. Now, the uh, the book, The Last Refuge of the Knights Templar, The Ultimate Secret of the Pike Letters, this is a sort of a fictionalized version. Um, tell me about the, 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 the main protagonists, Thomas and Janet. Well, Thomas, uh, in- interesting, there are no actual uh, descendants of uh, McLeod Moore. The, the family line died out, and I thought it was a real opportunity to develop a fictional descendant, a direct descendant of McLeod Moore, Thomas. Thomas is uh, is a character that I developed um, out of my mind. He was filled with self doubt. He was filled with uh, anxiety, um, and he meets this beautiful young Jewish girl from New York, who is obviously academic, but associated with uh, 
alchemy, Rosicrucianism, a uh, very spiritual um, uh, body. And it's through Janet that she uh, implies both physical and spiritual atonement to Thomas the, to allow them to really rediscover the sacred vaults location in uh, Western North America. And of course, they, they are pursued by um, the great villain, uh, a Jesuit priest who's a psychopath, but he's uh, acting on orders directly from the Vatican to recover these letters, which lead to the location of the sacred vault. Uh, Rosicrucianism, can you just explain to my listeners sort of the major tenets of that, uh, that belief sure. system? Sure, where Freemasonry is based on, on a moral allegory of rebuilding of Solomon's temple. Uh, and there are parts of, of rediscovering a sacred vault under the ruins of Solomon's temple and using those relics and artifacts to sanctify the building of the temple. It, it's a metaphor for life. As you go through, you build the foundations, the spiritual foundations uh, of your, your body and your mind as you move through uh, life itself. In Rosicrucianism, it's more of a metaphysical transformation. Uh, based on uh, alchemy, uh, based on the earliest alchemists uh, such as Francis Bacon, Thomas Locke, and and others, um, Andres Martin. Um, what it does is more on a metaphysical, transformational basis, allow you to picture what you're doing. You're taking your body, which represents the rough matter of Earth, and molding it into that perfect form, uh, trying to achieve the philosopher's stone, that purity of uh, spirituality of light within your body and mind itself. But, but sorry, um, what's really interesting is a lot of people don't realize is that you can apply it on both the spiritual aspect or speculative aspect, but also a physical aspect. And one of the things that you may have noticed in my book, I talk about taking the white powder gold, the monoatomic gold. I've actually been taking that off and on for a number of years, uh, as have a number of my associates. And it really, really allows you to achieve a higher level of uh, enlightenment, of clear clarity and spirituality. Mm, fascinating. Um, Janet is also a descendant of the Merovingian kings. Uh, and the House of David. Yes. Uh, and these were Frankish uh, kings, I believe. Uh, tell me about the Merovingians and, and how and why that is important to this story. Well, the Merovingians are, are obvious descendants of the Holy Family of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Um, they were the, uh, the first kings of France and they controlled uh, Western and Eastern France and uh, most of Europe at the time. And uh, they descended into the Frankish kings and then the, uh, the French uh, royal houses, which is fascinating in itself because uh, the original nine knights, the Knights Templar, Although they were outwardly Catholic, uh, they uh, practiced the old, what's known as the old religion, uh, Jewish mysteries, uh, based on information that they uh, they attained from their uh, ancestors, the Jewish high priests of the of the temple, 
And so the belief is that the original Nine Knights, they didn't just stumble upon the Templar treasure. They actually had information passed down from their ancestors as to where the treasure actually lay in the ruins of Solomon's Temple. So are the Merovingians, uh, are they essentially the embodiment of the Holy Grail, if the Holy Grail is to be seen as a sort of a metaphor for Jesus, uh, the the bloodline of Jesus? Yes, that's uh, actually, Richard, that's a perfect way of describing it. Um, They were the embodiment of, uh, of the Holy Family itself. And the the Jesuit the the psychotic sexually perverted Jesuit priest yeah. uh, that you that's in in the book and and the Jesuits were I guess you could say the kind of the stormtroopers for the uh, for the Vatican um, what is it that is so threatening to them contained in these letters well what they want is there's an assumption that within the sacred vault to this day lies certain records genealogical records relics artifacts associated with the holy families there's ossuaries containing the bones of jesus and mary and the children that uh, through dna testing today could prove that there are actual descendants of the holy family remaining Uh, within the population to this day. And if that's true, you wouldn't really need the Vatican or or the church to be the conduit to uh, speak directly to God. In actual fact, the embodiment of uh, Jesus himself would be within certain portions of the population. Now, uh, of course, this is a fictionalized account, but uh, when you uncovered these letters, between Pike yes. and Colonel um, uh, Moore, w- w- did it did it sort of pique the interest of the Vatican? Was there any sort of response to the news that, from the Vatican that these letters had been uncovered? No, because I haven't really advertised it as such. They, the uh, existence of the letters has only been exposed through my uh, fictionalized. Uh, uh, book, so it's going to be interesting to see if it does cause any concern. Um, again, coming full circle, you asked why did I uh, uh, embody that information within a fictionalized story? There's your answer right there. Um, I really, I the only thing I can say is that those I don't have those letters in my house right now. Uh, those letters are safely tucked away in a very safe. Uh, uh, spot because they could represent uh, certain fields of the fire against the the tenants of the Catholic Church. That's interesting. Um, I mean, the, the people should understand that the the Vatican is essentially a nation state. It it has its own secret police, doesn't it? Absolutely. And if you look over history, uh, what's really interesting from a Native Indian point of view, if you look at uh, the, the cause of the genocide that has been imposed upon the native Indians over 200 years, the Jesuits have been behind that in terms of the residential schools, in terms of the Christian movement into the native Indian areas, communities out west. It was all Jesuit related. So um, my love of the, of the Jesuits uh, is, 
is non-existent and it's interesting that we have a jesuit priest as pope in the vatican today the last refuge of the knights templar the ultimate secret of the pike letters how do we get a copy william you can get a copy through Amazon, your local uh, online bookstore, Chapters, Indigo, uh, other major bookstores, or you can order it through uh, my publisher, Inner Traditions, at www.innertraditions.com. William, this is fascinating, uh, and I don't know, I suspect Hollywood's going to come calling for this one. This is just a natural. Uh, congratulations, and thank you for spending some time with me. Well, thank you very much, Richard. Again, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Perhaps uh, when the next book comes out, we'll talk. 100%. Thank you. Take care now. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a moment to share a few details about an upcoming episode. Let's say hello to Colleen Forgus, our nutritional therapist and the manager at our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hello once again, Colleen. How are you doing? Coach, I'm great. How about you? Truth be told, a little bit of muscle pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've started walking and just a little, uh, you know, typical muscle pain. What do we have? My favorite product is called Intenzyme Forte by Biotics Research. And I actually take this one every day. I love it. It's a broad spectrum proteolytic enzyme. It's designed to reduce inflammation throughout the body. It helps with muscle pain, especially when we've had a little too much exertion. It supports hormone processing, digestion, the immune function, and even circulation throughout the body. Fantastic. Intenzyme Forte. All right, Colleen, we'll talk again soon. Take care, Richard. Talk to you soon. To get your Intenzyme Forte, go to strangeplanet.ca, then click on the Full Script Dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off, and orders of $50 or more ship absolutely free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, a demonologist discusses demons and unclean spirits, as well as his experiences living in a haunted house. We do have malevolent beings who will pose as ancestors or deceased loved ones in order to gain consent from their victims. And I I know that everybody in the field has seen that in hauntology. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.